Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for May 18th, 2018. I'm Brian Cardow. This is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast considering salient appellate and constitutional law questions. On the final day of April, the U.S. Supreme Court added an appeal from the Ninth Circuit to its docket for next term. It's one that could see the elimination of a class action resolution mechanism of increasingly regular application. It's the CPRE doctrine for the French CPRE comme possible, or as near as possible. And aside from dividing attorneys and judges as to its proper pronunciation, it's also sparked debate as to whether its use to, in the class action context, divert portions of settlements to charitable organizations rather than harmed plaintiffs has deprived those plaintiffs of their due process rights, perhaps also their First Amendment rights, and moreover has misaligned incentives such that class counsels and defendants might be encouraged to curate quick and perhaps discounted settlements that do more to enrich involved attorneys and relieve defendants of liability than to remedy harms claimed by a given class of plaintiffs. The commonly cited logic behind CPRE arrangements is that Large class action lump sum settlements tend not to be claimed in full by class members, and so it makes more sense to have what's left over donated to, say, a charity whose work tends to mitigate the sorts of harms that were sued over in a given lawsuit. But skeptics of the doctrine, including perhaps Chief Justice John Roberts, who tipped his inclination to revisit CPRE settlements in a certain denial back in 2013, say the procedure has tended to be abused and invites perhaps suspect donations from, for instance, class counsels to their law school alma maters or from defendants to organizations they already support. In fact, in the case being considered, both the latter circumstances were present in an internet privacy case brought by Google users against the tech titan. Nonetheless, the nearly entirely CPRE-based settlement was okayed by a district court and the Ninth Circuit and now awaits high court review. Two guests join us today to chat CPRE. Professor Jeremy Kidd of Mercer University School of Law, who filed a brief with the Cato Institute advising the court to take the case and to consider what he says are deep due process and First Amendment problems raised by CPRE awards. Then we'll hear from Professor Jay Tidmarsh from the University of Notre Dame School of Law, who, though cognizant of certain risks CPRE presents, has written that the game is worth the candle and that significant practical and theoretical justifications recommend not abandoning the doctrine altogether. First, though, for hearing from our guests, just a couple of reminders. First, as of a few weeks ago, listeners can download our podcast on iTunes and also stream it easily in the podcast app on iOS devices. Please search for, subscribe, and rate us there using our show name, Weekly Appellate Report, or by searching for The Daily Journal. And also, as always, listeners are invited to take a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears in order to receive one California CLE credit. Without any further preamble, then we welcome our first guest, Jeremy Kidd. He's an associate professor of law at Mercer University School of Law. He regularly files briefs before the U.S. Supreme Court and is a recently inducted member of its bar. He has recommended to the court that it would do well next term to rein in the use of CPRE settlements in class action suits. He joins us now. Professor Kidd, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Glad to be here. You filed an, an amicus brief along with the Cato Institute encouraging the Supreme Court to take a look at the use of the CPRE doctrine and class action settlements uh, at the end of last month, the Supreme Court decided to grant the case you filed a, a brief in, rises out of the, the Ninth Circuit. Before getting into the arguments that you raised, centering around due process, 
concerns and First Amendment problems uh, implicated by the Cypre doctrine in class action settlements, or put in non-French terminology, the, the direction of class action settlements to charities and organizations rather than to class members, often where uh, direct contribution to them is a little bit tricky. We'll maybe just briefly touch on on the facts here. So I think the, the plaintiffs here were essentially Google users that uh, sued when they found some of their search terms were relayed to, to websites that they visited via Google searches. Is that, is that right? Yeah, that's, that's correct. How did the procedure continue? I understand that the parties reached a settlement. Was there a certification of the class prior to the settlement? No, this was a, uh, a certification for the purposes of settlement. In fact, there was, there was still pending a motion to dismiss. Uh, the plaintiffs here had, had lost a, a couple of motions to dismiss. Their claims had been dismissed a few times, basically for failure to state a claim. And uh, the last motion to dismiss was still pending when the settlement was reached. And that settlement was roughly $8.5 million, with about a quarter of that going to attorney's fees, right? And then of the rest, how much was that directed to plaintiffs and how much directed to organizations and and charities? Could you describe the the nature of the settlement? Yeah, so it was basically, I can't remember the the exact amount that went to the named plaintiffs, but $5.3 million went to uh, the charitable organizations, just a little over $2 million went to uh, class counsel. Uh, and then there were some associated fees, so you know, tossed in there. Min- minimal, but but you know, minimal but rewarding uh, checks were written to the uh, would would be written to the to the named plaintiffs. But the vast majority of the the settlement is either to the class counsel or to the charitable organizations. As we've been been hinting at, though, that direction of funds to those charitable organizations is, is by dint of the Cypre doctrine. Uh, that doctrine originates in and trust and probate law, um, making, you know, directing trust and estate funds to purposes as near as possible to a, a divisor's, you know, intended target that became unfeasible. Uh, At what point did Cypre wind its way into the context of class actions? It was in the second half of the 20th century that it started showing up. Um, it really took off after uh, 1980, and then just exploded in the last decade. It's important to remember, so you know, in the trust context, we've tried to stay close to the intent of the, the individual who formed the trust, but we can't now. It's either impossible or sometimes it became illegal, so we just try and technically we're supposed to do X, but X is not possible, so we do something slightly different, but we're trying to stick as closely as possible. And in the class action context, we have you know pools of of money that are available for the absent class members to claim, but inevitably they don't. So what do we do with this big pot of money? And there are a few things we could do with it. I mean, it's possible to just give it back to the defendant. But if we're really concerned about keeping the deterrent effect on the defendant as high as possible, then we don't want to give them back uh, the money that was ostensibly uh, designed to make them pay for the harm that they caused. And so we have to find something else to do with it. Uh, Cipre seemed, a, uh, I guess at the time, a logical place to, to go. We don't want to give it back to the defendant. There are harms that the defendant inflicted. We'd like to remedy those. If we can't remedy, the, remedy them directly, we might be able to remedy them indirectly by finding organizations that are doing things that counter the harm caused by the defendant. That was kind of the, the origin 
of the doctrine in Cypress. That's obviously not not what happens now. Far too often we just jump straight to a Cypress award without even trying to get anything to the class. Yeah, we'll get into sort of the procedural fast track that you um, write about in, in the brief. Um, here, we might just spend one more thing out. So the, the organizations here were, I think, generally oriented towards studying or researching or trying to ensure greater privacy protections online. And so that's why they were chosen as the organizations to receive these funds based on a claim over internet privacy. Well, obviously, that's the claim for why they were chosen. They're, that's one of the, the primary disputes that Frank and uh, Julio raised in opposition to approval of the settlement is that, in fact, that wasn't why they were chosen. And the dissent on the Ninth Circuit also raised the uh, what the dissent thought was a fairly substantial concern that, in reality, these weren't chosen just because they were aiming for that same goal, but rather that they had uh, other there were other benefits to various parties from choosing these particular groups and organizations. But I, I guess that, that maybe to, to answer your broader question, you can imagine, you know, since this is about Internet privacy, you can imagine a, a long list of groups, uh, organizations, charitable or otherwise, that are attempting to improve the state of Internet privacy. It's probably fair to say that these organizations that were chosen for this particular CPRE award, they would be on that list. The, the question is, why them out of all of the other ones? Okay, um, and maybe diving into the brief that you, you filed, the, the largest portion of it centers around due process concerns related to the absent class members in suits like this who have their claims resolved by the settlement um, and disposed of, but because the settlement funds largely will go to charitable organizations, um, don't see any damages or any um, reward from the resolution of their claims. And before getting to kind of the way that the, the Cypre Doctrine in particular fits in here, you sort of say just in general with class actions of this variety where absent class members are given the option to opt out as the kind of only way to not have their claims be disposed of. Um, you see there's often in, in practice not a whole lot of meaningful opportunity for those plaintiffs to get out of those claims if they'd like to. Yeah, it's a fair assessment of our of our argument, which was individuals who have been harmed obviously have a right to redress. And that is, in my mind, in the mind of my uh, co-author, uh, Ilya Shapiro, that is a property right. And the only person who should be able to dispose of that is the individual who possesses that right. The reason class actions exist is because it's often difficult, uh, well, basically impossible for an individual to bring a claim it just would cost too much to bring the claim. The, the expected value, if you will, of the, the claim would be negative. But if you aggregate enough of those claims together with common elements of fact and law, then you have one case that can settle all of them. And the you know at per claim cost comes down enough that the case becomes feasible. And so there's a reason why class actions exist. But when we shifted to an opt-out system versus an opt-in system, then you run into a problem with individuals who don't know that they're part of a, a class. And if they don't know that they're part of a class and they're not paying attention to the class, then the incentives of class counsel and the class begin to diverge. Because class counsel, they may have some, they, they may believe morally and ethically in the goal that they're pursuing to make the, the defendant answer for what they've done. But they also, they're individuals, they're human beings. They have uh, individual incentives as well. They want to make money. They want to, they want good things for themselves. So there's always going to be that push and pull within them. And since we regularly see 
lawyers disciplined for doing things counter to their clients' interests. We know that just the ethics of lawyers isn't sufficient to guarantee that they will look out for their clients' best interests. And it's hard enough to, to do that when you have a client that is there with you every day. Mm-hmm. But when you are representing, as in this case, between 120 and 130 million people, you have two to three clients who you are dealing with, and you have the remainder of that 120 to 130 million people who will never check up on you, who will never ask you any questions. And there's a strong incentive to disregard what, what is best for them in favor of what is best for yourself as a lawyer, which is making sure you get paid. So that's, that's the primary problem. And you're required to notify class members, but that notification usually takes the form of a small piece of paper that shows up in the mail. And it looks like every other piece of junk mail, or not even just junk mail. Yesterday I received my bar license renewal information on a postcard, and I almost threw it away because I get lots of little pieces of paper that look like postcards, and I get them from class action settlements, I get them from bar organizations, I get them from random businesses in my in my community. And so a lot of them just go in the trash. People don't know that they're part of a class. A lot of people don't even know they've been quote unquote injured. And so that kind of detachment from the case makes it far too easy for plaintiff's lawyers to disregard what's best for the class and look out for what's best for themselves. Good opportunity for a, f- a five-second podcast public service announcement to uh, occasionally check your mail. Uh, sometimes there's good stuff in there. But <laughs> exactly. Uh, this case is a pretty good illustration, as you say, of folks that you know might not really know that they're part of a class action against Google because you said yeah, there's like 129 million people that are part of this class, basically anyone that's put in a, a Google search in the last few years. Um, but you know, I've certainly done a few myself and haven't felt any negative impacts, I wouldn't, you know, really know that I'd be a part of some class that was coming uh, down the pike. Exactly. And, and you know, it, even the, the district court judges that approved the settlement seem to agree that there's no harm here. So it, it makes it more difficult, more difficult to justify any kind of resolution other than dismissal of the case because there are 129 million people who apparently have not been harmed and yet they are being presented as uh, aggrieved individuals for the for the purposes of what looks like benefiting class action counsel who get paid $2 million and some charitable organizations that may be doing good work, but it's not clear that we're redressing any real harm. As you, you bring it up, was the, the claimed violation like a, a sort of a statutory one and, and that triggers the, the standing as opposed to actual yeah. claim time? Yeah, and there's an entirely separate discussion to be had about the the benefits of common law over statutory law, that uh, you can have minor statutory infractions don't really relate to an actual harm uh, in the way that we would recognize it under uh, a common law regime where you have to prove that someone has been injured, that there's an actual injury before you can sue. There's a violation of the statute you can sue, even if there doesn't appear to be any harm to any individual but you can tally up how many people have technically had their rights violated, rights being in scare quotes at that point. And you tally up that number and it gets really big and that makes for a really powerful in some ways argument in favor of uh, class action settlement because Google and others, even if there's no harm to anyone, Google still has to take that seriously. They still have to consider what the cost will be if they don't settle or whatever attorney's fees the uh, class counsel is asking for, and then figure out what settlement will be big enough 
to justify those attorney's fees. It was one interesting piece of this case was that point that the maybe the the claims and the claimed harm isn't that significant. That would point to be advanced by both sides as bettering their case. The the attorneys for Google saying that, you know, hey, even if these claims aren't that good, they they are out there floating around. And so it behooves us to resolve them. And so, you know, the court should be shouldn't have too many problems with us doing so in this manner uh, that's efficient and, and gets the problem solved. Well, and a lot of the tech firms that are faced with these types of claims, uh, I guess I can sympathize with Google and others. Uh, Facebook a few years ago um, with a case that was even worse than this one in terms of the settlement, but they are faced with, again, statutory violations, but a technical violation that doesn't actually result in any real cognizable harm to the 100 plus million people who have had their rights technically violated. And Google and Facebook and other tech firms are sitting there facing statutory violations of 100 million people. They just want it resolved. And so, you know, their their argument, of course, is going to be, even if these are, they're not entirely frivolous because it is a statutory violation, but even if the, the, these are claims that shouldn't, you know, in the name of efficiency or, or, you know, justice shouldn't be clogging up the courts. They are. And so what's the best way to get rid of them? And it it seems to me that Google's argument is, even if this is a sham, even if this is everything that, uh, um, that Frank and the others say, we still need to resolve these claims. And so this is the best way to do it. So we ought to just accept uh, this little sham arrangement, pay off the, the class counsel, and, and let things move forward. Of course, that ignores the dynamic effect of the system, which is the minute that you establish that as the justification, then you have a guarantee that that, it's, that type of claim is going to be brought over and over and over and over again. And what's, what you've done, what the Ninth Circuit has done by saying that this is what will allow, uh, will allow you to see prey when it is infeasible to distribute anything to the class. You've just set a target and now class counsel and defendants, or defendants won't want to do this, obviously, but class counsel will, will want to ramp up the amount that they demand, and there will be some limit where the Ninth Circuit will say no. This one was actually fairly small, right? It was pennies uh, per person. But where does it become infeasible? Is it a dollar per person? Is it, you know, 50 cents per person? But eventually, you know, the Ninth Circuit will establish some basic limit below which it becomes infeasible, and then that will be sort of like uh, an insurance policy limit in a MedMal case. That's just what the settlement will be for, and will always be for, because then the people will know that you go through the North, Northern District of California through to the Ninth Circuit, and they will just approve it, because it meets the technical requirements of being infeasible to distribute to the class. And then you've just got, you know, you've got these borderline frivolous cases that just need to, in, the, in, in Google's language, just need to be dealt with. But we're going to keep getting them over and over and over again as long as we've got these statutes on the book. So it seems to me like the real solution is get the statutes off the book or fix the statutes so that these little uh, niggling violations that don't actually injure anybody aren't technically illegal. That's probably not what you wanted to talk about today. <laughs> yeah, that's certainly a, a whole other podcast in and of itself. Um, yeah. But in terms of, I guess, the improperly aligned incentives that might encourage less than scrupulous attorneys to self-deal or kind of collude with the defendants to curate the lawsuit in such a way as to both 
raise attorney's fees while including and resolving as many potential outstanding claims as possible. You say that kind of all gets worse when you also throw into the mix the Cypre doctrine where the settlement can be directed to organizations as opposed to having it get you know sent to, to absent class members. How, how exactly does Cypre make things worse in, in, in your view? You see yeah. there's a few different ways. Yeah, and there's two primary ways. Uh, one that has that, that because it changes the incentives for the defendant, and one because it changes the incentive for class counsel. So it changes incentives for the defendant because it actually would, you know, reduces the cost of the settlement. So in this case, you have 5.3 million going to some charitable organizations, but a number of them are organizations to which Google already donates, and so Google gets the benefit of continuing to donate to these organizations through the Cypre. So they get they get PR benefit, if nothing else, by you know additional contributions. Now, it's contributions made through a, a class action settlement, so there, it, it wouldn't be as much as just writing a big check. But everyone knows where that came from, and everyone knows that Google arranged for this money to come. And I know this because Mercer Law School received a, a CPRE award a few years back, and the attorneys that were responsible for it, and the defendant, and the judge, and everyone were lauded tremendously at Mercer Law School for a couple of months because we now have these, these extra funds coming in. So the defendant, by giving to a charitable organization instead of handing money over to injured class members, gets a PR benefit and possibly, and I don't know that this actually happens, I have no idea whether Google would do this, but it at least opens the possibility that you know, if Google was going to donate $1 million to a particular charity this year and instead they arranged for this Cypre award of $1 million and then they don't donate the $1 million this year, then that part of the settlement is essentially costless to Google because they simply transferred it in the form of a Cypre settlement as opposed to a check that they were going to write. So in both of those ways, it is less costly for a defendant to agree to a settlement. And then it also changes the incentives of the class counsel because there are limitations. Uh, although the Ninth Circuit and some other circuits have been very flexible and lenient with what they will allow class counsel to get away with in terms of their fee awards. But there are still some limits, even even in the Ninth Circuit, but similar to, to with the defendant. So you receive your actual award, and then you receive all of the PR benefits of obtaining these CPRE awards for individual charitable organizations, then you get that benefit as well. So for both class counsel and for defendants, the costs and the benefits of agreeing to a, a settlement completely change. It becomes far more beneficial for both sides uh, to agree to a settlement when a, a CPRE award, it, a CPRE only award, is feasible and allowed by the courts. And then, as we kind of started to hint at earlier, the, the parties, the organizations, specifically which ones they are, can be a part of the problem too. I mean, you just said oh, if an right. organization is, um, you know, one that a defendant already contributes to, then that raises some some questions and maybe some concerns. Um, but also, I think here on on the the, the plaintiff side, class counsel, I think th- three alma maters of theirs alma were maters. recipients. Yeah, so you get you get to donate to your alma mater, and you get to be a probably get wined and dined at the next alumni yeah. event and. The dean of the uh, school or the president of the university will be calling you to thank you. And, you know, so there, there's those benefits. Going back a couple of years, probably the worst one was uh, the Merrick B. Lane case, 
where the uh, Supreme Court denied cert. In that case, part of the uh, Cipre Award went to an organization for internet privacy that was created for the purposes of the settlement. And Facebook, the defendant in the case, got to place uh, some of its executives on the board. So it was partially controlling the funds that were contributed uh, in the Cypre Award. So in that case, the defendant was in part giving money to itself, which is just one step further. And uh, it was fascinating in uh, in some of the briefs and in the uh, the lower court, court decision, references to basically this this isn't as bad as Facebook, and that's true because the the, uh, the Facebook case, the Merrick v. Lane case, is probably the worst possible scenario that you could imagine. But just because it's not that bad doesn't mean that it's not bad. And then I, I did forget one other incentive that has a far far greater potential for actual corruption in the system. Again, potential, I'm not making any claims about anyone in particular, but there's, the potential is there, and that's what we ought to be worried about, is the potential of buying off the judge with a favorable CPRE award. So instead of giving the money directly to the alma maters of class counsel, you give money to the alma mater of the judge. And that, again, I, I have to assume most judges would find that a little beyond the pale, but the incentive is there to find ways to make it not quite so obvious, but still achieve the same results. You get a judge to be more favorable to agree to your settlement by giving them something in addition to what the defendants and class counsel are getting. As we talked about, the the Ninth Circuit did approve the settlement or the trial court approved it and the Ninth Circuit affirmed. And that was largely based on the idea that this Cypre option is a good alternative where it's maybe not really worthwhile to try and direct a settlement or settlement funds to absent class members here, trying to direct $5 million or so dollars to 130 million people ends up being a few cents each. So maybe that's not terribly worthwhile. So is that, you know, just incorrect kind of statement of how the law should be? Is it just bad policy? Is the, the problem with the Ninth Circuit case, they didn't uh, analyze the rest of the pieces here, the direction of the money to alma maters and seemingly, you know, potential things that looked a little bit fishy. Um, what, what was the, kind of the main uh, problems here? So, yeah, so there's there's a couple. So part of it is that the Ninth Circuit just doesn't engage in the rigorous analysis that is supposed to be engaged in by the circuit courts. I and mean, the Supreme Court said in Walmart v. Dukes that there was supposed to be this rigorous analysis under Rule 23 before you approve any settlement. And so part of the problem is it, just, it doesn't seem like the Ninth Circuit engaged in any kind of rigorous analysis. Part of what they're supposed to be looking for is collusion between the parties. And you have to be blind not to notice the potential for collusion. I, I get that most judges on the circuit courts aren't uh, public choice economists like myself. So I understand that they might not get the, the grander, kind of the, 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 the overarching concern of you know, self-dealing generally. But in this case in particular, even the dissent pointed out that the majority simply brushed past all of the, the obvious uh, evidence of collusion in, in terms of this was to their own modders and this was to organizations that Google had previously, you know, previously donated to and appeared to be ready to donate to again. So all of this evidence of collusion just, uh, it doesn't pass the smell test when it comes to the court doing what it's supposed to under that rigorous analysis. So, so there's that, and, and just in terms of applying the law as, as set down by the, by the Supreme Court. 
the the Ninth Circuit panel probably is correct. That given Ninth Circuit precedent, what they did wasn't that bad. But that's a that's an indication that the Ninth Circuit, when it comes to class action settlements, has just gotten crazy, and that the law there has been allowed to get so far out of uh, out of line with what um, you know the rigorous analysis and the analysis and the requirement in uh, in Rule Twenty, you know, Rule Twenty Three. That this is supposed to be, you know, fair and meaningful. You know, that the the class, basically this this is about the class members and that their rights need to be protected. It's their due process right, not not the defendants, not the class counsel, not anybody else. It's the class members' rights. So the Ninth Circuit has just gotten too far afield in terms of what their the law in the Ninth Circuit is. And then the final and uh, obviously for us most important is just as a matter of policy. Allowing CPRE settlements is just a bad idea because it creates all of these perverse incentives. It misaligns the incentives of class counsel with those that they are supposed to be representing. The use of this doctrine in this context is problematic and creates problematic incentives. Then, I guess, what what are the main alternatives if you know, the, the doctrine was adopted to avoid just having leftover money reverted back to the defendant, which you know, sort of would lessen deterrent effects of such lawsuits. Is that the better option, though? Or what, are, what else is out there in terms of solving this riddle? I think for the most part, there is no one, there is no, there's not going to be a single solution. Because in some cases, you do want to, you do have to worry about a lack of deterrence. If there's some indication that the defendant has engaged in wrongful behavior and knows it's engaging in wrongful behavior, and we need to create deterrent so that the, that kind of behavior does not occur in the future, then it's not just a it's not a simple matter of returning the the money to the defendant. But in cases like this, I don't see the the harm in you know if no if it's impossible to if not impossible infeasible uh, to give the money to individuals. Because it's, I mean, in this case, it's a technical violation of the law, but one that has resulted in no harm. So it's not clear to me exactly how or why we need deterrent effect for the future. No one's harmed by the technical violations of the law imposing a huge cost in order to effectuate some desire for deterrence. But deterrence for what? There's no harm caused. So in some cases, we could get, we could let the money revert back to the uh, to the defendant, and it would be fine. In cases where we are worried about deterrence effect, there's no reason why we couldn't allow the money to cheat to the state. I mean, if, if what we're worried about is harm that is that, that could be incurred later on, so we need to make sure the defendant is is, harmed, is made to pay for the harm that they've caused, and you know, to, to let every other potential defendant know that they will be. Will you say? I mean, I, I'm not a huge fan of lots of additional sources of revenue for government without some limitations on where the money is going to be spent. I'd like for there to be some connection between the money that, you know, that escheats to the state and some tie back to the harm that was caused. But that at least takes care of our deterrent question. So it seems to me that, that there are, there's a variety of different remedies that we could fashion in ter- to, to solve the problem that the CPRE settlements are supposed to be achieving. I mean, in, in this case, right, if, if there's really no harm and it's infeasible to give money to anyone, why isn't the, the appropriate re, the appropriate resolution of the case just to say there's the damages is no, there's no, we could just say there's no standing 
you know, the, the damages as alleged are as close to zero as makes no difference. Therefore, there is no cognizable injury and therefore there's no standing case dismissed. Right. So there's any number of, of solutions that we could put into place. I just don't think that there's one single, this is how we fix it. I think the courts are going to have to take a long look at how we make Rule 23 work. I mean, nothing else. You could go with a an opt-in regime for certain types of, you know, if I would be okay with a rule that said, if you want a Cypre, if you want to use a Cypre award, that's fine. But then you got to use an opt-in mechanism. Send out those postcards and get back, you know, 10 million that say, I realize I'm part of, I'm a potential part of this class. I am okay with it. And I'm okay with this type of Cypre uh, award that class council has, uh, has said they are going to, uh, to use as their settlement offer. Then you've got, then, then you don't have a deprivation of due process because all the individuals have affirmatively opted in. But in all cases where we use the opt out system, which is the standard default, uh, under our rules, for me, it's it's too much of a of a risk that we are de- you know depriving people of, of due process for nothing. They don't get anything in return, nothing of meaningful value in return for their for selling off their uh, their claims. You also cite the idea of an opt-in model as a a good legal solution to an, an, another issue you advanced in the brief that we can just speak about briefly. First Amendment concerns related to to these sorts of awards, um, as you say, you know, big classes like this will tend to have folks in it with a diversity of ideologies and, and viewpoints. And so if the court approves their settlement and directs money that, you know, was came as a result of, of that class's claims uh, to a particular group is a good chance that plenty of folks in the in the class will not want to be supporting the, the views that, that the group espouses. And, and so, ergo, there's a First Amendment problem there, but was you, I, you wrote about, I guess, the opt-in model yeah. would, would go a long way to, to solving that. Yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, it, and if nothing else, the last two to three years should have brought all of this to very stark relief for us, right? So, what, what, what is the purpose of the Internet? What is the purpose of dialogue on the Internet and privacy on the Internet? There are fairly disparate views as to what the Internet should be, what it is. And think of 120 uh, million people, 130 million people. Right? In all likelihood, half of them voted for our current president and half of them voted for his opponent in the last election. And they probably don't agree on much of anything. And their, their differences of opinions probably extend to what should, you know, what type of Internet regulation, what type of, uh, you know, what should be allowed on the Internet, what shouldn't be allowed on the Internet. And so... To say to those 130 million people, we don't care what your views are, we're going to give to these six groups. Well, how do I know whether those six groups are going to say anything that I agree with or whether it's all going to be something I disagree with? And since it is the court declaring that all of these people have, they are required by the court, if the settlement is approved, they are required by the court to surrender their claims in exchange for money going to these uh, these organizations. They are being forced by the court to contribute money to these organizations because it is their claims that provide the value to the CPRE award. And so the court is effectively forcing all of them to speak in the voice of these six organizations. And they may, you know, we, we may get lucky and all 130 million people may agree with the messages, the actions of those six organizations. But the likelihood of that seems basically I mean, it's very, very close to zero, the probability that 
that we would get lucky and have all of those 130 million people, or even maybe more than half of them, to agree on anything, including Internet privacy. You know, so the, the, the settlement is problematic from that perspective as well, that we're, just, we're forcing people to speak in ways that they haven't agreed to. So how do you solve that? Well, you, you have them opt in. If someone's willing to opt in, then you know, they're not, they are of their own free will choosing to speak in the, in the voice of those six organizations that the that class council wants you know, to give money to. And a couple more. One, as the, the, the core or the, the general theme of most arguments in the other side's briefs, from Google's attorneys and the original plaintiffs here, um, that theme seems to be you know, that parties should generally be free, plaintiffs and defendants, to resolve their legal disputes disputes in the ways they see fit without the court interfering uh, too overly much. And so if this particular variety of settlement is the one um, the, the sides have, have reached, that's uh, efficient mechanism, efficient use of the, the legal process. And so, you know, courts should generally smile upon those sorts of things. And I guess, you know, what's the, the main argument against the idea that that the party should be free in order to be able to do agreements of this variety? I think there are two. The, the first one is that just as a legal, as a matter of law, I think they're wrong because it, not, not, that, not that generally plaintiffs and, and defendants shouldn't be free to work out their, their differences. But when it comes to a class action lawsuit, the Supreme Court was clear that the circuit courts are supposed to engage in a rigorous analysis. So Google's attorneys and the attorneys for the, for the plaintiff, for the class, uh, speak in kind of these uh, very hands-off terms, but that's not at all what the Supreme Court has said. So as a matter of law, they're, they're just wrong. But then from a, from a policy perspective, um, what we talked about earlier, that it's not, even if they're right, the, the key phrase is plaintiffs and defendants. And who are the plaintiffs in these cases? Well, they're not the class counsel. They're all the individual class members. And so there's 129 million people. And that 129 million people, if they could work effectively with defendants to work out something that, uh, that benefited all parties and kind of resolve the issue, then, yeah, the, the courts probably should take a more hands-off viewpoint. But in reality, what we have is a handful of attorneys working with a handful of defense attorneys and maybe one or two named plaintiffs, but it's not even clear that those named plaintiffs spend a lot of time being involved in the case. They are, in many cases, I don't know if, that, if it's true here, I have no inside knowledge about this, but in many cases, those named plaintiffs are just their figureheads and they, they just wait around for their check at the end. And so there aren't any plaintiffs involved in these. This isn't plaintiffs and defendants working out their, their legal dispute. It's lawyers for you know, class action lawyers and lawyers for the defendants working out what works best for class counsel and defendants, which usually means high fee awards for class counsel, uh, lots of claims dismissed so that the defendants can get the, you know, get their, their plate cleared of all of those. And then the, the individuals who are supposed to be caring about, the individuals who actually have the claims, they just get pushed to the side and said, thank you for your, uh, for your claims. We'll dispose of them as we wish. And that's, that's just not right. Okay, um, then last one, do you have any sense of how the court might approach this one? Now it's on the docket for, for next term. I, I note in the briefing that the Chief Justice ha- had mentioned, uh, I think, a few terms back that um, the court might want to take a look at this doctrine and, and revisit its contours and propriety. Um, does that suggest yeah, the court might be inclined to perhaps do away with it altogether to instruct lower courts to take closer looks at this type of settlement? Do you think they'd be 
more concerned with the due process implications, First Amendment ones. I guess, what's your sense of how the court might uh, might feel about this particular issue? Well, as I tell my students, I, I try not to pull out my crystal ball very often because it's almost always wrong. But um, my sense is that the chief is probably amenable to either just eliminating it entirely or at least putting some severe restraints on it, on the use of Cpray. And obviously he got three other votes to review the case. Uh, if I had to guess, I'd probably guess that the more conservative wing would probably be, I mean, it, depending on you know what perspective you take, that you know if, if they're you know the, those that are more pro-business might be more you know, more limited government uh, might be more likely to uh, to limit CPRAE. Those who are you know generally in favor of tort reform might be more likely to limit CPRAE. But in the end, I don't know. I don't know because you know Kagan often surprises me. I've usually got a pretty good beat on the uh, Ginsburg and and Breyer, but Kagan often surprises me. Occasionally, Sotomayor surprises me, and I just have no idea with Kennedy. So, um, and then there's all the you know there's the hubbub about whether Kennedy will be here next term. So it's it's hard to know. If I had to, I'm, I'm not a betting man, but if I had to bet money, I'd probably put a, a small amount on the Ninth Circuit being reversed. Exactly what outcome, whether it would be you know eliminating the just saying CPRAE is a violation of due process like we we claim, or whether just some limitations, that I have no idea. Okay, well, uh, we'll find out in uh, several months here after the resolution of this term and then and then getting into next term. But uh, we can leave it there for now. really appreciate you jumping on the podcast, Professor Jeremy Kidd from Mercer University School of Law. Thanks again. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. I had a great time. Jay Tidmarsh is the Judge James J. Kleins, Jr., Professor of Law at the University of Notre Dame School of Law. He's an expert in complex litigation and civil procedure, and his scholarship includes work on the CPRA doctrine in the class action context and the benefits it there serves. Professor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. You've written on the topic of CPRA and its use in class action lawsuits a few years ago in the 2014 George Washington Law Review. You penned a piece called Cypre and the Optimal Class Action. Um, a couple of questions about that specific paper. In it, you note that Cypre doesn't always lead to a sort of the most optimal class actions being brought or, or certified. I suppose just on, on that point to start, how do, what is the optimal class action as you define it and how does Cypre either contribute to it or uh, make it less likely that such, of, such optimal suits are brought? So an optimal class action, uh, in my view, um, it it goes back to a very simple and basic principle, and that is that uh, litigation should not cost more than it benefits uh, the people who bring it. I mean, it's just sort of a simple intuition that, uh, you know, you shouldn't pay more for something than it's worth, I guess, is is a simple way to put it. And so in my view, uh, when you're talking about a class action, uh, one of the things you want to make sure is that it's worth bringing it uh, in the sense that um, the value that the class action returns to the, the members of the class, uh, the people who are you know, within the, the confines of the class, that in fact they receive a benefit that exceeds the costs of bringing the lawsuit. So that's the simple idea, at least, that lies at the, at the base of my um, discussion about Cypre relief. If Cypre is, is used to, to direct settlement funds in class actions, 
in what ways does that impact you know how the, the classes are arranged um, either in an optimal or, or less than, than optimal manner? Well, the risk of Cypre relief, and it's not something that I'm necessarily completely against, but the, the risk of Cypre relief is that it induces lawyers to uh, make the class action larger than it should be uh, because uh, what Cypre relief does, of course, is rather than delivering the relief to the individuals, the individual class members, uh, the money is given to some uh, third-party organization um, for charitable purposes or at least typically at least purposes um, that more or less are directed toward the, the, the goal of the lawsuit. So um, what that does then is it gives lawyers, if they know that Cypre is a legitimate option, it gives the lawyers who are constructing the class action, the, the class counsel, uh, it gives them an incentive to make the class action larger because they know they don't bear the burden of actually having to spend the money to deliver the relief to individuals. Um, so they will increase the size of the class action to more than that which would be its optimal size, the size at which, um, again, um, you don't bring a class action on behalf of individuals unless it's financially worth it for them. They get more out of the lawsuit than what it costs. I suppose maybe grounding that discussion in, in the case that discussing on, on this podcast that will be considered before the Supreme Court, I'm out of the Ninth Circuit. How, how does the, the theory of not bringing a case unless it's, it's worth bringing for all the parties involved and the, the class members named and, and absent. Um, how does that idea square with, with the current case here, Frank versus Gauss? So I'm not as familiar with the details of uh, of Frank versus Gauss, I, and I what I don't know is I just don't know the economics of it in the sense about whether or not the you know whether or not the claims themselves are worth enough money that they would be worth bringing, given the costs, of course, of, uh, of a class action, the attorney's fees and notice costs and other things. So I'm just not sure whether or not the, you know, the, it, it's worth bringing. If it is worth bringing, um, then you would think the money should presumably be delivered to, to the individuals. If it's a class action that is not worth bringing in the sense that the value to the members of the class is less than, you know, what the what the costs of bringing the class action are, then it's 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 a problematic lawsuit. And again, I just unfortunately don't know the economics. I know the settlement was for eight point five million dollars, but whether that realistically reflects what the expected value of the suit was for individual class members, unfortunately, I, I, that that's the critical piece of information that I don't have. In that piece about Cypre and the optimal class actions that, that are either brought or, or not brought, you do say that notwithstanding some of the concerns related to the, the doctrines used in this context, um, that nevertheless there are some, some practical and, and also some theoretical reasons why Cypre does serve legitimate ends. And um, what, what are those? So the principal end that Cypre delivers on is deterrence. If a defendant has done something wrong and uh, has cheated, if you can imagine, you know, a large class action with millions of people, each individual having been cheated out of only, let's say, a dime, there's no reason for individuals to bring those lawsuits on their own. And even if you collectivize them into a class action, it may well be true that it's going to take more than a dime to actually deliver the relief to the individuals because it's going to take whatever the price of a first-class stamp or something like that, just to send the check out. Uh, and it doesn't make sense in those situations to um, uh, to try to deliver the relief because, again, it's more costly to do so than the benefit that the class members receive. On the other hand, you don't want to give defendants an incentive to 
cheat people out of a dime apiece because over millions and millions of transactions, that amount of money can really add up. So there are some advantages to to Cypre uh, relief in the sense that they are uh, they aren't much in the way of compensating victims, but they can certainly um, threaten deterrence against defendants in uh, small claims kinds of situations. Yeah, I, I get the sense from some of the briefing on the the side of the objectors here objecting to the settlement that that idea that the, the injury suffered by each individual plaintiff, um, if it is fairly minimal, like you say, as an example, perhaps 10 cents a piece, then maybe that kind of recommends the sort of suit just really shouldn't be brought at all. But uh, you, you say there there are worthwhile deterrence reasons to provide a, a, an avenue for those suits to, to be brought to guard against this, that sort of thing. That's right. So you've really got two ways to go. If um, Again, if it's one of those situations where it's only a dime in relief, then it's going to cost you more than a dime to deliver the relief. The one way to go is simply to say you haven't really suffered a harm, uh, or at least you know, we can't use class actions to bring these cases together. And then, of course, nobody will sue for just a dime. So effectively, the case goes away. Or to recognize some form of Cypre relief or relief to that that doesn't perfectly compensate each class member. Uh, those are really your two options until we get into a world and maybe technology will eventually bring us to that world where it becomes possible to um, figure out ways to deliver a dime's worth of relief to individuals for something that's less than a dime. Uh, but in the meantime, you either have to use something like Cypre relief or you just simply have to say class actions simply can't be used here. They're not really the superior mechanism for resolving these kinds of controversies because their costs exceed their benefits to the people on, who, on whose behalf they're being brought. And then that's the dichotomy you see in Frank versus Gauss is, is in a sense, what are class actions? There's one dichotomy you see in Frank versus Gauss. I think there's a second one as well, which really goes to the heart of what class actions are. Some people see class actions as an aggregation of individuals um, just brought together for convenience and economy. Other people see a class really as a separate collective entity. It's almost its own thing. It's like a, almost like a corporation that has its own existence. And if you follow the former view that class actions are nothing more than just an aggregation of individuals, then you really have to make sure that each individual um, gets compensated. If you see the class action as an aggregate, as, as sort of a collective thing like a corporation, then you don't have to worry as much about compensating each individual within the aggregate as long as the aggregate as a whole is getting some benefit, the collective gets some benefit. And Cypre Relief can do that by giving money to organizations that are basically working toward the same purposes as the class members are working toward with their lawsuit. A couple more points on, on the idea of, of deterrence. In in your paper, you also cite the alternatives besides Cypre diverting class settlements to organizations might advance the ends plaintiffs would desire. For instance, where a lump sum some settlement is agreed to and there's some leftover money, it could it cheat to the, the government or the remaining funds could be just paid to those plaintiffs that did submit claims or you know, were more easily reachable. The idea that the funds can be diverted to organizations, I guess some folks have said, can also weaken the deterrence uh, element because those organizations could be ones, for example, I think as here in this case, where a defendant um, already contributes. So uh, for one, they get some PR benefit. And for two, they might potentially be able to deviate from a, a futurely planned donation based on the, the settlement fund. What are your thoughts on, on that idea of weakening deterrence uh, in the Cypre context? 
Certainly, that's a possibility. Um, it would depend, obviously, on uh, on a given set of facts. I mean, there are some other concerns as well that have arisen in one prior lawsuit. A new organization was established, and um, the uh, defendant in the case, it was Facebook, uh, actually took some seats on the board of this new organization, uh, this new charitable organization. So there were some concerns about whether the defendant actually was unable to sort of control the direction to a degree of uh, of this organization. So sure, those are all legitimate concerns. And there, there are no perfect solutions if you give the money to the government. Again, individuals aren't getting any benefit from that. If you give extra compensation to um, those individuals who did file a claim, they end up being uh, overcompensated. Um, so maybe you get the deterrence right, but you don't get the compensation level right. Um, and, and so there's no perfect solution for this problem. And it, again, goes back to the fundamental question about whether or not compensation or deterrence is uh, the fundamental goal of a class action, and to some extent, that depends on how you see class actions, whether they're aggregations of individuals or it's its own collective entity. One principle qualm also raised by the objectors is, and others is that the, the use of site prey will misalign some incentives and perhaps encourage class councils to up their attorney fee share in ways that tend to you know, not benefit the absent class members that they're representing. You do also in your paper suggest a potential way in which attorney fees could be awarded in in these lump sum type cases that would tend to, to mitigate that concern, right? That's right. So I, there are ways to try to align the incentives of class counsel with the class members, and that's a fundamental difficulty in class actions. One of its most fundamental concerns, not that it plays out in every case, but there's a concern about um, whether or not the class counsel is conducting the class action for the counsel's benefit rather than for the benefit of class members. So you know, a simple solution to the problem um, of cutting down on Cypre relief, of trying to encourage counsel to make sure that the class action is right-sized to begin with, is to uh, award counsel uh, fees based only on the amount of money that is actually delivered to the class members. Uh, so any Cypre relief doesn't count toward the class counsel's fee award. Now, that's a controversial proposition, and, and I should say that with that, there also has to be a very particular method by which you calculate counsel's fee. So you have to co- use a combination of an hourly method and a percentage of the recovery, but the percentage of the recovery is calculated only on the basis of the amounts delivered to to the class members. That should give class counsel an incentive to make sure that they're only going to include in the class those members who are whose claims are a sense worth it and should significantly reduce the problem of Cypre relief. So I think you can with incentive structures, the way you structure fees for class counsel reduce significantly the reliance that we see these days on Cypre and all the difficulties that it presents. The idea being that Cypre could sometimes be viewed by attorneys and defendants as a shortcut if they, they're worried that the class they're constructing would be fairly hard to get the settlement to or just that there you know, would be too many folks in it to make it worth relating, relating the settlement to them? That's right, exactly right. Um, so it becomes just too easy to say, I'll take a, a, a bunch of money and I'll give it all to a third party and I'll take my fee, rather than really working for the benefit of the clients for whom class the class counsel should be working, in other words, the class members. Uh, so it just becomes too easy for class counsel to ignore the needs of the class members if they can be compensated without having to worry about delivering the relief to the class members. Not in every case, but certainly in, and certainly in some cases. 
maybe just one last one to close. I haven't done some research on this doctrine recently. Do you have a sense of how the Supreme Court's inclinations toward the idea might be? It's a kind of issue that doesn't seem to naturally and logically split upon, you know, ideological or political party lines. Uh, I know the Chief Justice mentioned, I think, in that Facebook case where cert was denied that Cypress needs to be reviewed and now they'll have the opportunity to do so. Do you have thoughts on where what their temperature might be towards the doctrine at the moment? Well, if I could predict the Supreme Court, I'd, I'd be in a different line of work. You know, I think that uh, so the Supreme Court has obviously been looking, or at least certain members of the Supreme Court have been looking for a vehicle to look at this issue of cyber relief for some time. They've denied cert on a few cases that might have been those vehicles. For instance, the famously the case in which the, the Chief Justice actually wrote a, a statement with the denial of the, of the cert petition, in essence saying this wasn't the right case for it, but I think we really have to look at this issue of Cypress relief and then just listed out a whole group of questions about uh, Cypress relief that um, that he believed needed the court's attention. So um, later cases haven't presented it. This case presents those issues fairly cleanly. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen. My sense, if you were to make me bet, would be that the court will come to something like the American Law Institute's position with regard to Cypress relief, and that is that Cypress relief should be permitted only when it's not feasible to uh, deliver relief to individuals, deliver further relief to individuals, that you have to make every effort to deliver relief to the individual class members, and only when uh, there's some leftover and it would cost more money to deliver the leftover um, proceeds to class members than you have in proceeds, then you can do something with like Cypress relief. But uh, my guess is that the court is not going to be disposed toward the kind of Cypress relief that we saw in uh, in Frank versus Gauss. That, that's a guess only, but uh, that would be my belief. And, and it's going to shut down to some extent an aspect of class action practice, which is certainly a consistent theme of much of the court's recent class action jurisprudence as well. Okay, we'll have to wait a little while to see, but I appreciate you uh, helping us preview this interesting case for October term 2018. Professor Jay Tidmarsh from the University of Notre Dame Law School, thanks again for your time. Thank you, Brian. And with that, our show for May 18th, 2018 is complete. I'd like to thank my guests once more, Professor Jeremy Kidd from Mercer University. School of Law and Professor Jay Tidmarsh from University of Notre Dame School of Law. Thanks are due also to my production staff here in particular, Nick Perez. Thanks also to our editor, David Houston, and to you for tuning in. It is tremendously appreciated. Don't forget one, that CLE credit is available to podcast listeners on the dailyjournal.com site. Just find it appended to this podcast And don't forget, our podcast is newly discoverable on the podcast app and on iTunes. Please find us there at Weekly Appellate Report or by searching for The Daily Journal. All subscriptions, ratings, and clicks are greatly appreciated. I'm Brian Cardell. Look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.